1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Collaboration, yet another topic and another time we're talking about this topic. I think you're going to find that it is expected everywhere around you. And some of you may be saying, we got too much of it. But real collaboration and the powerful teamwork requires partnership, something I'm certainly you know is true. The question is, how do you actually get the reality of that to happen in your organization? And that's what we want to talk about. What does it take to create a meaningful partnership, particularly within a team and with your manager? And then how are we most effectively creating partnerships that make a difference? And a teaser, I want to talk about how do we avoid the dreaded four D's in this process. So my guest today is Seth R. Silver. He's the principal of Silver Consulting, and he's worked with hundreds of clients on leadership, cultural change, employee engagement, and workplace success. Seth was an associate professor of human resources at St. John Fisher College and the Rochester Institute of Technology. His co-author, Timothy Franz, excuse me, Franz, is an yeah. organizational psychologist, also at and chair at the St. John Fisher College. The book we're talking about today is Meaningful Partnership at Work how the workplace covenant ensures mutual accountability and success between leaders and teams. And you can learn more at silverconsultinginc.com. Seth, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. Delighted to be here. All right. Now, I know why I care about collaboration and partnership, but why does this topic matter to you? What are you seeing as a problem we really need to solve? Ah,
2: big breath. Well, um, you mentioned that I've been consulting for a long time. And when you talk to people in organizations and you ask them, how's it going, uh, they can certainly talk about the good things, but they often then begin to share the bad things. You, you teased with the dreaded four D's. And so maybe I'll just seize on those right now. Um, the first D is dissatisfaction. And so we do see a lot of dissatisfaction. People are not happy with the relationship they have with their immediate boss or key colleagues. Uh, they're not feeling supported. And I'm going to come back to that word because that turns out to be a really important and key word. They're not feeling encouraged and recognized and appreciated. And when that goes on too long, people begin to be disengaged, which is the second D. Um, and that's a state where they're coming to work, but they're, they're kind of walking through it a bit mindlessly. They're, they're certainly open to other opportunities. Um, and, and they're just not feeling challenged. Uh, so that's disengagement. The third D is what happens when this state goes on too, too long, and that's despair. And people feel like they're wasting their life. They're wasting their talents. They're in a position where nothing is going to change. Uh, That boss is who he or she is. My colleagues are who they are. And this is just not the place for me and I need to get out. And that leads obviously to the fourth D, which we're seeing an awful lot these days, which is departure. And so people leave. Uh, And in today's economy, they've got a few more options maybe than they would have had pre-COVID or years ago. But those four Ds were around before COVID when my co-author Tim and I and my best buddy uh, you know, wrote this book. So we were responding to that need, you know, that people are, are feeling uh, that the important thing at work, those relationships, the I would call it the heart of the workplace. It's not actually a term we use in the book, but I, I believe that partnership is the heart of the workplace. Those key relationships that help us get stuff done and make us feel good about what we're doing and who we're doing it with. Um, and so the book is really, a, if I can just cut to the chase, the book is an exploration about partnership. It's, it's pulling that onion back. We use that word. Actually, there's two words we use a lot in, in business, I think. One is partnership. Gee, we need to partner on this, or so-and-so will be your key partner on that, or we need a partnership with this company or this department. The word's used, but it's not well understood, uh, perhaps like leadership and other things, customer <laughs> service. And the other word that's used an awful lot about which there's really no common consensus is support. Mm. You know, I left because my boss didn't support me. If you ask, you know, most people why they left a job voluntarily, oh, they'll go into the detail. They didn't feel appreciated. They couldn't feel any um, opportunity for upward mobility. They They weren't being challenged. It was getting repetitive. But ultimately, if you look at all those reasons, they weren't being supported. Right, they they didn't get those things, which to me are all aspects of support. Recognition is part of support. Appreciation is part of support. Opportunities to grow is part of support. Having the tools you need is part of support. Being listened to, being respected, being trusted—those are aspects of support.
1: Yeah, and we could go on. There's a whole lot that we could put in that um, support category. You know, it's interesting, Seth. I think there's a lot of words we use in business, and we all think we know what we're talking about. And we know the general territory, but we could, we're a long shot from being able to say, here's the behaviors you need to be doing to get that. One of my pet peeves on a regular basis, particularly when managers go to give feedback. That's another story. We'll leave that one for the moment. The dreaded four Ds, dissatisfaction. That's the one we hear so much about. Your relationship with your boss isn't going well or with your key colleagues or with your peers. You don't feel supported. You're not encouraged. You're not what we might say is motivated. You didn't Mm -hmm. use that word, but I will. Mm -hmm. That then leads to disengagement. And we're certainly seeing in the current environment that engagement survey results are down from last year. So lots of people are feeling disengaged. Leading to despair, which says nothing's going to change here. Why am I staying? I'm wasting my time and effort. And And finally, life. life, (laughs) You know, it's not worth it. I don't have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. That's any enthusiasm. I'm just dragging myself through the day. And finally, to departure, because we've got lots of choices at the moment. So there must be something greener. According to PwC's recent global report, somewhere between around 60% of every employee workforce is actively looking for another job.
2: Yeah. Yeah. disengaged think, or actively disengaged. Yeah. I think it's at least that. And I have seen some of those numbers that go at least the numbers I saw went back to 2016, 2017. And it was usually it was the 20, 60, 20. 20% were really disengaged. Yeah. Like if you asked them about their workplace, they would go on with the, you know, all the pejoratives about their their boss, their organization. Uh, 60% kind of in that middle category, neither engaged nor disengaged. So it really depended on the day. Um, and then the 20% were actively engaged. And, yeah. you know, those, those are the wonderful organizations that pay attention to their culture. And if I can just talk for two seconds about culture, I think there are two kinds of culture in the world in an organization. There's culture by intent and culture by default.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and culture by default is when we don't really care about it. We don't think about it. It just happens. And I'd say the airlines are a pretty good example of that. Um, they're not really focused or built around what's the experience that we want for our employees, what's the experience we want for our customers. Those few organizations, I don't know what percent it would be, maybe 10% or fewer, um, have culture by intent, by design, and they've thought through, what do we want for our employees? What do we want for our customers? Um, you know, I live in upstate New York, and down the whole north side east of the United States is the Wegman Supermarket Corporation. And If you find one of their employees and you look at their business card, on the back of it, it says, employees first, customers second. I mean, what a statement. Employees first, customers second. Of course, they have the best customer service of any supermarket chain. (laughs) They're the most successful supermarket chain and they have rapidly loyal customers and employees. So yeah, I think culture is part of this too. Um, How do we create a great culture? And the book really addresses that as well because at a team by team, micro by micro level, we create relationships dotted throughout the organization that are defined by meaningful partnership, um, perhaps you're going to ask me later about ERTAP, E-R-T-A-P, is our theoretical model. My co-author and I are professors. He's a full-time professor. We like to joke that he's a professor who consults, and I'm the consultant who occasionally professed. <laughs> but um, we do have a theoretical model. We call it ERTAP, which stands for Empathy, Respect, Trust, Alignment, and Partnership. So we believe there's a sequence to that. Um, and then we talk a lot in the book about the workplace covenant, which is this wonderful, expedient, efficient uh, tool which helps great. two parties in a relationship have this conversation right I, I know part of your whole your whole theme is is having great conversations and yeah. how do you do that well yeah workplace covenant does that
1: i think yeah interesting idea um and i agree with you Con- culture cool. i think probably 80 to 90 percent of companies have a culture by default would like to try to change it but you've got to be intentional about what you're trying to do and how you're doing it all right so meaningful partnership um So I would agree with you that partnership is everywhere, and I suspect we probably do okay on our partnership with clients and with customers. At least a lot of my clients seem to put a huge amount of emphasis on being sure that they have that strong partnership, particularly with their key clients and customers. But I think we fail to take those same skills and turn them inward on our teams. Now, so clearly the skill set is out there somewhere in the world. But why? What? Why is this lacking? Why are we missing this so badly?
2: It's an interesting dichotomy you raise, and it's one we talk about in our introduction chapter. Isn't it interesting that we care so much about the external relationships? You're right. We even I mean, hotels measure it, uh, restaurant chains measure it, mm-hmm. uh, banks are starting to measure it. Uh, lots of organizations find ways to quantify the customer or client relationship and what's going well, what can be improved. And they appear to be sincere in their efforts to know how it's going and what to do different. But your point's well taken. Then we look within and you realize how important those internal relationships are to getting stuff done. And we don't seem to care about them at all. There's nothing systemic. There's nothing structured. There's nothing being measured. There's nothing uh, by way of a standard on what an ideal internal partnership should be like. I mean, I'm sure somewhere at some bank HR department or customer service department, there's a model of what the ideal high net value bank customers' relationship should be like with the bank and how many touch points there should be with that person and, you know, the response Mm -hmm. time to emails and phone calls, you get my point. Um, Yet internally, between a manager and a team, uh, where's that same structure around touch points and responsiveness (laughs) and, and support? I come back to support and, and people will define support differently, which is why the conversation is different, you know, in each case and why the conversation is so important because you can imagine a team and a manager in retail versus a team and a manager in an engineering environment. Mm -hmm. And they have the conversation of, which comes from this workplace covenant process. How do we support, you know, how do I support you boss and boss? How, how do you want, uh, you know, how, how should you be supporting us? And that will look slightly different uh, depending on the work environment. Right. Um, and well, and then
1: the needs are different. And the needs are different based on the experience level of the employee and you know, how much they can do autonomously, how much they need guidance and coaching, what they're trying to achieve in their career, what their ambitions are. There's a whole host of factors that are going to alter what it is people want to support from a manager. I'll totally agree with you. So when we have a meaningful partnership, what does that actually look like?
2: Oh, I'm glad you went there. So meaningful. Why do we call this word meaningful? It's, it's kind of a buzzword lately, isn't it? And I don't know if we jumped on the wagon with, with that term. But when we were writing the book, Tim and I, uh, it was shortly after Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. And there mm-hmm. were a lot of obituaries and tributes to her, uh, you know, a wonderful life dedicated to women's rights. And it was said that she led a meaningful life. Uh, and of course, we wholeheartedly agree. But what did that mean? It meant that her life had impact, it had significance, there was legacy, it was devoted to a cause bigger than her. Um, and we thought about that and we said, you know what, that's that's the, the promise of a meaningful partnership at work has that, that it has impact, that it's significant. And, it, you know, I may be talking now what some of your listeners might think of as superlatives, but I'd ask every listener to just take a second and think about the great relationships or let me ask the relationships they've had in their work career. Okay. Just kind of the whole spectrum and how many would they really categorize as exceptional Mm -hmm. that were truly great or let's call it meaningful partnerships where they felt supported, they felt connected, they felt a strong collaboration, that there was strong cohesion um, and that they were in alignment and it, was a valuable relationship to them that meant a lot and that their partner cared as much about their success as their own success. And I'll tell you, most of your listeners will probably tell me 10%, you know, 10% of, of the partner relationships they've had, maybe fewer. And the other ones were average or, or terrible, right? You know, arguments and, and misunderstandings, etc. So it's back to your point. How do you create meaningful partnership? Well, we define it in the book as an elevated state of connection, cohesion, coordination, and collaboration. So we had the four Ds, now we got the four Cs. Elevated state of connection, cohesion, coordination, and collaboration. Um, and it's meaningful because it has the potential for significance, impact, legacy, and, and being transformational. And I guess, you know, to bring it down to the street level in practical terms, it's where your partner cares as much or more about you as they do about their own success. Mm -hmm. It's an equal, I mean, the subtext of the book, right? How the workplace covenant ensures mutual accountability and success between leaders and teams. It's that mutuality of responsibility for the health and welfare of the relationship and the success of what's being done. Right.
1: I um, when I work with teams at any level in the organization, and especially true for top teams, one of the big questions is, do you need each other? Because if you don't need each other for more than just an exchange of information, then I can call it a day, I'll go home, I'll send you a minor invoice or no invoice whatsoever, we'll call it done, and you don't need any more help because you're not going to get any better than where you already are. It's only when you recognize the interdependence, the mutuality, the ways in which we need each other to be more effective in this organization that you're going to get anywhere, And I think this is the same with a boss subordinate relationship or even a peer to peer relationship, you know, where you don't actually have any control over somebody, but you're trying to collaborate, coordinate, let's see, uh, connect, be cohesive, all those good things to get something done, like say a project. And until you understand the mutuality of it, I don't think you get anywhere. So I like that you use that word. Mutual is important.
2: Well, it's interesting your 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 examples there. I think, and again, it's in the book. I think chapter one. There are certain engagements we have with others that do not require right partnership, much less meaningful. I mean, I can have a plumbing problem and call the plumber, and the plumber comes over, and you know, I'm happy to make social chit chat and offer the person coffee, and they do their thing, and I write the check, and that's that. Um, It's not an ongoing, interdependent sort of relationship. Um, And relatedly, the need for empathy, respect trust and alignment is not there. Right. I mean, I don't really have to understand the plumber's problems. There's no requirement in that sense. And I don't mean to be disparaging a plumber that God knows we need them, yes, we do. <laughs> but, but I don't really have to understand his world or her world. And they don't really need to understand mine or what's important. Um, they need to understand where the plumbing problem is, but beyond that, Uh, Respect, of course, owed respect. Uh, I think there's an owed respect and earned respect. There's some research on that, by the way. Owed respect we give to anyone. Earned respect is based on long-time engagements with someone, and they've behaved their way into a level of respect. They've shown you skill. And so depending on whether you know this plumber, there may be both earned respect as well as obvious owed respect. Um, Alignment, you know, we don't really have to explore that one too. My point is, it's a short-term thing, exactly like you said. But if I'm on an engineering development team and we're working on a project for eighteen months, or I'm on a marketing group and we're you know pitching a product and we're going to be doing that for four or five months, or um, in a financial institution, there's a team and a team leader and you know that team's in place for the foreseeable future. Yes, more long-term interdependent right. relationships, or
1: sometimes even short-term where we're trying to solve a thorny problem, where. It's not just you do your thing and I do my thing and we'll meet up at the end of the day and everything will be done and dusted. It's much more, a, yeah, this effort, keep trying to use the word collaborative, this effort to come up with a unique solution or a unique understanding. Then I going to argue that you need your empathy, respect, trust, and alignment from your model.
2: And even in well, that example, there, there's a certain duration of time. Mm-hmm. It is not transactional in a right. you know, one hour, even one day kind of
1: thing. All right. So not transactional. Okay, great. Okay. So meaningful partnership, because um, it, it raises, it creates an elevated state of connection, cohesion, coordination, and collaboration. And as a result, a meaningful partnership has impact, significance, legacy, and transformation more than um, transactional.
2: Yeah. More than just sort of the ordinary relationships that we've right. all had. It's, it's special. And actually, I'm, I'm going to, bring in my, my co-author who's not on the call, but I mean, he and I are partners. He and I developed a workplace covenant, by the way. We realized into this process that we had to practice what we preach. I mean, I think we've been sort of in tune with each other anyway, but at a certain point in the project, we sat down and said, okay, you know, we're doing articles, we're doing research, we're writing this book and we're going to start to publicize it. Uh, we're doing consulting gigs together. So, you know, even though he's got his day job at the college and I've got my day job consulting, we were intersecting quite a bit. There was a lot of interdependence on various things by mm-hmm. choice. And, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> quite quite literally, we wrote the book on the thing, but so it was a faster process than perhaps it would have been with a client right. or a new organization. But he created a list of here's what I think I owe you to help you, Seth, feel supported and be successful. And I, in turn, wrote down on a piece of paper 10 things that I thought I owe Tim in order to help him feel supported and be successful, because those are the two Cruxical questions, by the way, in the covenant conversation, right? How do I help you feel supported and be successful? And uh, we presented it to each other and we explained why we did it. And and we kind of wordsmithed and massaged it. And I signed his and he signed mine. And, you know, voila, we both have our covenants. And you know what? It's been useful because, you know, over the last year and a half, there's been twists and turns with the book and the publishing and the consulting. Anyway, every work relationship will have twists and turns and will have ups and downs. Great. Um, All
1: right. So let's talk about this concept of covenant. You've used the word a couple of times, but I know you intentionally chose that word covenant for a very specific reason. Explain.
2: Because we hated the word commitment. <laughs> no, we're not commitment phobic. I'm jesting a little bit. But um, the word promise, the word commitment, these things are broken, you know, like like twigs in the forest. Um, com- families break these things. People break these ideas at work all the time, we wanted something with more obligatory weight. That was the, the terminology we use in the book, obligatory weight. The covenant is not a religious thing. It's a small C. So it's got, you know, no spiritual dimensions or anything, not a blood oath or anything. But it is a, it is a um, promise. It is a, it is a uh, obligation um, that we take on with our personal integrity and our professional integrity. It's a matter of both personal and professional. And look, people are human beings. They'll sign up for these 10-item lists and say, you know, I'm going to do my very best to live up to this, you know, Wanda, so that I can help you feel supported and be successful. I'm going to make mistakes. And the, the process is built in to allow for the apology, the reparation, the, you know, the, hit, the reset button and move forward and not hold grudges or grievance. Okay. Um, that's okay. actually an important part of the process.
1: Go so ahead. walk us through the process. So you said already there's a, you gave an example of you write it down what you're expecting and the other person writes down, but explain how this process all goes.
2: So let's let's take the example of a team and uh, let's say five people, let's keep it mm-hmm. small and simple, and a manager, he or she, it doesn't matter the context. So if they were going through this, they would allocate two and a half hours, ideally in person, but it could be done virtually too. I would argue hard in today's world, that it should start in person and then it can naturally go to virtual. but what they do is the manager outlines, here's what I believe I owe my team to help them feel supported and be successful. so I owe them coaching, I owe them resources. I owe them timely information I owe them trust and empowerment. I owe them understanding of their personal lives. I owe them recognition when they do great work. I under- owe them opportunities to come together and you know be together as a team and you know communicate in person and that kind of stuff. Um, and the team in turn does a mirror image. Here's what we expect from you, boss, in order for us to feel supported and be successful. And think about that. Here's what I owe. Here's what we expect. You look at those two lists, and guess what? You sure hope they overlap, and they typically do, okay? Having done this a zillion times, there's usually about 70% overlap. The words are a little different, um, but there's 70% overlap in in Basic concept and the process then goes to let's compare contrast let's discuss the differences let's merge so you know we we present we we uh, make sure the other side is totally aware of where we're coming from and then we combine and refine uh, creating one list and then we confirm and sign and and so that sign that is signed now by the manager so that's his or her covenant to the team then we reverse the process right the team then presents its list of, here's what we owe our manager to help him or her feel supported and be successful. And the manager has his or her list of, here's what I expect so that I will feel supported and be successful. And again, you you compare and contrast, um, you combine and refine those two lists and you confirm and sign. So that all takes about two and a half hours. This is why I I'm really passionate about this process because You know, if I had a quarter for every time when I present this, the team, oh, we haven't got two hours. or We haven't got three hours. This sounds really timed. If you haven't got two and a half hours to establish the boundaries and the ground rules and what's going to make your most important work relationship successful, I would argue you've got your priorities mixed up. Because once it's done, it's done. At that point, it's in the review stage. Once you've established these two lists and signed them. You're now at the point where you can look at it yourself and reflect on it. You can talk about it with your partner. As a team and a manager, it's reviewed about every three months, and that can take as much as 90 minutes, as little as 20. Um, but it's a way to ensure course correction.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I like the term micro-adjustment. You know, We've heard the term micro-aggression. Okay. Um, I want to use the term micro-adjustment because with the covenant and with the two-way exchange of feedback, which always starts with well, how am I doing, you know, as a team, how do we think we're doing supporting you, boss? And we think we're doing eight of the 10 things well, but we know we could improve on two. And the manager gets to comment on that and then give his or her feedback to the team. And then in turn, the manager says, okay, you know, I've got these 10 items and I think I'm doing six of them pretty well, but I think I could improve on four. And then the team says, actually, manager, you're hard on yourself. We think you're doing eight pretty well. It's only these two we want you to improve. Well, hearing that feedback and giving yourself feedback and sharing it, is the opportunity for both sides to say, okay, you know, it was three months ago, we last checked in. What do we need to do to make sure the next three months is even better than the last three months? So it's a continuous improvement process. We make these micro adjustments in our behavior based on the commitments we've made. Sorry, I used the C word, but based on the covenant items. Um, and, and here's the other thing I want to say about this one. You know, in the workplace, there's a lot of fear around feedback you want to know yeah. one of my passions yeah. in writing this yeah. book.
1: yeah okay go for it
2: is to get rid of the fear you know yes. let's, let's come back to our friend the plumber all right you you you've got some water heater pro- the water water heater's broken and um you know you might say you know what uh, this tap is leaking or something so you have the plumber take a look at something else and the ta- and the plumber says you know what that tap's really worn it looks like it's 30 years old you need a new tap would any of us be morally offended by the plumber who says i think you need a new tap Gee, looks okay, fine, replace it. (laughs) I'll add more to the check. You know, that's the matter-of-fact level that feedback needs to get to. Um, I think maybe something your listeners can appreciate is in sports. Think soccer, think football, think baseball or hockey. I'm a hockey guy. When a sports coach, sports coach gives feedback to either an amateur player in a high school or a professional player on the ice or on the field, that player doesn't take it personally and get bent out of shape and become defensive. They say, oh, that's great feedback. I will use my hips or I will breathe this way or I will you know, manage my arm because that feedback will help them perform better and help the team win more. Well, that's what feedback in a workplace covenant does. It helps you perform better and win more because when you're helping your partner, they're helping you. It's in your enlightened self-interest to do that. So, forgive me for waxing on, but
1: I think, well, I think this is really, really important. But I believe, along with Kim Scott, largely persuaded by her, that if I don't think you care about me as a manager or as a peer, so we've lost the mutual component, we've lost the meaningful partnership component, then I'm not going to take your feedback positively. I'm going to see it as you're just attacking. You're just trying to get even. You're just dismissing your own inadequacies. I'll interpret that in a host of ways that aren't getting where we need to go. But where you come back with your notion of the covenant is the acknowledgement that it's mutual, that it's interdependent, that it's meaningful. It actually is. We need each other to get this job done. Partnership, in effect, at the end of the day. And in that context, feedback changes. So if you take your player coach, the player knows the coach wants to win as much as the player wants to win. And the player has to believe the coach is trying to protect the player from injury and so on. If they don't, it's not going to go very well. Um, There we go. That piece is missing in business. We take it for granted, I think.
2: Well, if I can point out what I think you're saying is there's an alignment, right? There's another business word we use a lot and don't really understand what we're saying. Because in your sports player analogy it's clear as a bell that the alignment exists with respect to the goal. The goal is to help that team become a better performing team and win more on the field or the ice or whatever. And so the feedback is given in that context. It's received in that context and there is a mutual trust. So this comes back to our model, doesn't it? This, this, you know, initial state of empathy. I, we believe, and Tim and I believe in the, as we write the book, that with two partners, whether that's a manager and a team, by the way, meaningful partnership, can totally exist between two individuals right. two teams or two departments. So let's just say two parties. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a level of mutual empathy that really is the starting point. It's the starting point. It's like, what's it like to be in your shoes? What do you care about in this relationship? What are your goals? What do you need? Um, and that's a good starting point because, you know, it's that old uh, Dale Carnegie phrase, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care.
1: Yeah, It's so yeah. true, right?
2: So yeah. Um, the empathy thing allows you to really, for a moment, with the exchange of obligations and expectations and discussion of goals, get a sense of what the other side cares about. Mm-hmm. And it, you can acknowledge it. And And that, in turn, we believe leads to this level of respect. Mm-hmm. So respect increases as empathy increases. So you've got empathy. You've got respect. As those commitments are kept over time, the promises, the covenant items, uh, there's trustworthiness. There's trust, that trust bank account, if you will, an old term. Mm -hmm. Improves. And so you've now got empathy, respect, and trust. And then you get to alignment. So imagine back to your point the coach and the player, um, yeah, they know where each other's coming from. They, you know, if they haven't exactly walked in each other's shoes, they at least understand what the key concerns are. The coach is trying to help the player. The player understands the coach is trying to be helpful. Um, There's a level of respect for each other's talents and skills and who they are as people, one would hope. Um, There's a level of trust knowing that the other has the other's back and not going to harm, do no harm. Um, You know, it's not going to take anything out of confidence, you know, if confidentialities are shared and, you know, over time that leads to alignment. Right. And that means we're rowing in the same direction. It's that two in a canoe metaphor we use in the book.
1: All right. So I like this notion that there's this build over time because I don't believe trust is a switch that you just turn on and say, right, I'm going to trust you or no, I don't trust you anymore nor do I believe it's a black or white. I think it's a, like a bank account. I often talk about it like a meter. It comes and it can decline. And what you want to do is to kind of keep it moving forward. Anyway, we start with empathy, kind of understanding what others care about, what our needs are, what our goals are, what is the other person thinking about, struggling with. Showing that empathy is where you begin to build some respect. But respect is also going to come from some credibility, what you've done in the past, how you've worked with this in the past. Your reputation a bit is going to impact respect, I would argue. If you keep the covenant and we go through this, then you're going to develop trust. It's the reviewing of the covenant. And I'm in the Charles Green camp that trust is built when I reveal myself steadily over time. And I take a risk and I say something to you, like I give you some feedback on something and you take it pretty well and we fix it. That's where the trust really gets built. And that trust then is what builds the alignment and ultimately leading to real partnership. Okay. Now I think people could look at this and say, and evaluate pretty quickly of the people out there I need in my organization to be my partners. How were they doing on the empathy, respect, trust, alignment equation? But I would also argue, how are you doing? What I like about your model is it puts the emphasis back on everybody to say you have half the equation. So, how am I doing with my partners on empathy, respect, trust, and alignment? So, let me
2: comment on that a little bit. So, if you look at the model servant leadership, wonderful model, you know, uh, Robert Greenleaf and, and espoused by many others since, it's a wonderful model, but it basically says it's a one way street. The leader must be this selfless, Mm-hmm. you know incredibly kind above it all individual who who does everything for the sake of of others um, and has no needs. And mm-hmm. I, I don't buy it. I just think yeah. that's just not human, right? Yep. We all have needs. There, there is occasionally the ego stroke. We, we all have our own dreams and goals with respect to organizations and our, you know, our very human needs. Call it Maslow, call it Hertzberg, you know, whatever it is. It's, it's the need for recognition and, and inclusion and appreciation. And I will say, just having done consulting, that one of the stories in the book and something I've seen a fair amount of is the manager who doesn't feel supported by his or her team. Mm-hmm. There are managers who feel abandoned. It's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm here at seven or eight or at work at seven or eight on the computer. And I'm putting in my 15 hours and not checking out of the day until 10 o'clock. And you guys seem to be done after eight or nine hours and leaving me with all this stuff and getting the presentation ready for tomorrow morning. Um, how many managers feel, you know, abandoned and, and yeah. just like their team yeah. doesn't have their back. So it is very important that the team be an equal partner with respect to, um, the health and welfare of the work relationship and the success of the thing being okay. done. Right. And, and so that interdependence is, is key. And, you know, we use the metaphor too in a canoe because, you know, if you've ever canoed and you're decent at it and the other person isn't, you're just going to go in circles you're going to hit things. It's, it's kind of humorous, if not frustrating. Um, but when you've got another person in the canoe who knows what they're doing and you're on the one side, they're on the other and you're stroking at the same time and you've got the same rhythm and you're breathing in the same way, and you know where you're going, then it really is exhilarating. It's fun. Mm. And it's, it's really cool and, and that's our metaphor for partnership is two in a canoe, you know.
1: Two in a canoe. Align. All right. I like that. Yes, I think there will be a lot of managers listening who say they don't feel supported, sometimes because the team isn't working hard enough, but sometimes because the team doesn't recognize what they said in that other meeting with somebody else and how that comes back around in the manager in a negative way. There's all sorts of stuff that happens in this one. All right, Seth, this is a perfect place for us to at least take a pause sure. and um, take a break. So my guest today is Seth Silver. The book we're talking about is Meaningful Partnership at Work, How the Workplace Covenant ensures mutual accountability and success between leaders and teams. I think the heart and soul of this one for me is this notion of the covenant, to be explicit what I as a manager owe the team and what the team owes me as a manager so that both of us, both the team and the manager, can be successful and feel supported. That sets up the basis for doing some pretty consistent regular feedback review process improvement and adjustment sometimes on the covenant so that we're all building towards this lovely alignment and partnership that we've been talking about. So when we come back, I want to talk about grudges. We'll be right back. talk about
2: grudges.
1: group and talk about career advancement and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on out of the comfort zone.com. we hope you'll join us
0: when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network you are listening to out of the comfort zone to reach dr wanda wallace or her guest call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back to the show. With me today is Seth Silver. He's principal of Silver Consulting Incorporated, You can learn more at his website, silverconsultinginc.com or at teambuildingprocess.com. The book we're talking about is Meaningful Partnership at Work, How the Workplace Covenant Ensures Mutual Accountability and Success Between Leaders and Teams. Um, We've been talking about this notion of taking implicit understandings, I'm going to use your words here, Seth, and making them explicit. So it's very crystal clear what each person wants. Needs expects in this mutual partnership. It's agreed upon. It's written down, and it gives us a basis for doing feedback and review and improvement along the way. And I think um, sets up that sense of caring that I think is so important in the feedback process. And I like your notion, Seth, of making what is in my head that I think you should already know explicit and very crystal clear. We also know in teamwork. So when the team is explicit with each other in terms of what they need, something we used to call a contract, I like the idea of covenant, then it helps the team perform much better. Okay?
2: Uh, as you're talking, I have to tell the origin story. And yes. It's not the origin story that some of your listeners are thinking. So it's not that Darwinian or biblical one. It's the origin story from the book. Uh, of where this workplace covenant process came from. And if I could just take about 60, 90 seconds here. So a long, long time ago in a country far, far away, I worked at an organization, a high-tech company, and I was fresh out of my grad school uh, experience at Cornell and, I was doing uh, organization development work, which meant I was doing leadership and customer service stuff and and mentor programs and all kinds of good things. And one of the things I was responsible for was team building with the engineering teams Mm -hmm. and literally several thousand employees, hundreds of teams. So it was a huge sandbox to work in. And so back in those days, they did day long, two day long team building things. They were usually arranged about a month in advance. So in preparation, I would meet with the manager one on one. And I would ask a bunch of questions, you know, how's communication and uh, how are your goals coming and how do your internal customers view you and how's it going with your team? Mm-hmm. You know, what's the relation? I didn't actually use the word relationship, but I'd ask, how's, it, how's the real, you know, what's going on between you and your team? And the manager would typically say, well, they're a pretty good team, but I wish, I wish they'd respond faster. I wish they didn't have side conversations and meetings. I wish they wouldn't grumble about sunrise meetings at 7am. I wish... You know, they they did ops reviews in a more systematic way. I wish, I wish, I wish. And I made notes. And then, you know, you'd imagine the next day, I'd do my focus group with the team. The boss isn't in the room. And I'd ask the team, how's it going? And how's it going with your boss? And they would say, well, he's okay or she's okay. But we wish. <laughs> we wish they understood. You know, the boss understood we have a life outside. We wish the boss didn't impose those sunrise meetings on We wish the boss recognized... You know our level of going above and beyond. We wish the boss would fill that empty vacancy because the extra workload with that person missing is killing us. We wish, we wish, we wish. And I walked away from this thinking, don't these people talk? <laughs> <laughs> like, like seriously, this is not rocket science. And, and you know we're not talking about psychopathology here. It's a wish list on what they need to guess what feel supported and be successful. The manager had not shared what he typically in this, in this environment is what ninety percent he what he needed from the team and those wishes that he had. Similarly, the team had never explicitly shared. So it occurred to me in the team building, we've got to do that. And initially, what happened was I would simply get them to share their expectations of each other. I haven't thought yet to evolve this process into obligations and expectations, but they shared their expectations and they clarified and they came up with a rudimentary contract. The process has evolved over time. And when Tim and I started to collaborate, we kind of changed things and, and Created the notion of first talking about what you owe before you talk about what you want. And that turns out to be psychologically powerful, uh. by the way. So by starting with, here's what I owe you. Here's my obligation list to you to help you feel supported. If, if you think about you and I, as yeah. partners, yeah. if I start with the list of here's what I owe you, I have to be thinking at an empathetic level. What, right. what does she need from me? What does my obligation list got to look like? Because if I was in her shoes, I'd want this from me, or I'd need this. So we tweaked the process, um, and we also did this combine and refine thing and and the signature thing. So the process has certainly evolved. But back to your initial question, what the process does is it does make the implicit explicit. And I think what happens now, uh, as I like to joke in the book, is nothing. <laughs> what happens now is a new manager starts with a team, and that manager may be insightful enough to say, "Hey guys, here's what I need from you to make things work." And then the meeting's over. <laughs> There's never the second question of what do you need from me to make things work, or let's write this stuff down, um, or you know, let's get a little bit more granular in in, in this wish list. So um, back to my earlier point, there are no standards for what a good manager team relationship should look like, and so we pitch. This in the book is something you'd want every team to go through in the first 60 days. I mean, yeah. it just, it makes sense, doesn't it? It's easier right. to, to uh, build attitudes than change them. Why would you wait a long, long time for it's mistakes broken. to get made. And yeah, right. Total broken. So right.
1: And then people feel beaten up on, right? That's when you start to take it personally. You've not told me for six months that this is what you were looking for. My, my goodness. Yeah. And guess what? So, Dissatisfaction,
2: disengagement. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: right. Exactly. Yeah, where this is going. Absolutely. Totally. It makes a lot of sense. Right. All right. I know we were going to say we were talking about grudges, but I need an example. Ben, you've got a bunch of good examples in the book. So just pick your favorite and <laughs> show us how this all worked out.
2: Well, I, I'll start with maybe two. Um, one was a nursing home, and um, the manager was really less the protagonist here. He was a nice guy. He was liked by his senior staff as the, the head, the head person of a nursing home, mid-sized nursing home. And um, he had a senior staff of about a dozen people, and there was a schism. There was a real divide. Um, first of all, they weren't great leaders, and they were. Uh, there was a huge employee turnover going on that itself was a big problem. Um. The, the senior person, the senior administrator of the nursing home was was conflict avoidant um, and hesitant to give the critical feedback that I think was necessary. Um, and in the team, in particular, you had the nursing senior people, and then you had the other director. You had food service right. director and financial director and social work director and uh, et cetera, admissions director. And the nursing people, it was like just this, this uh, what do you call it, mm-hmm. those silos, right? There right. were just two distinct right. silos. and Um, it had gone back a long way and there were real personal grievances and one side had felt shut out by the other and the other side had felt disregarded by the other. So a lot of baggage and a lot of hurt feelings. Um, the intervention that, uh, myself and Tim did was, was first of all, um, you know, some basic team building, a little bit of leadership training, but we got to the workplace covenant and we built the covenant and we did two things. And so this is important for your question. One, we built it between Mick, who's the senior person, the administrator, and the team of 12. But we also did a second covenant. So there was Mick to team, team to Mick. But then there was a second covenant, which is senior staff to each other. We call it a peer covenant. So what do we owe each other as peers to help one another feel supported and be successful? So there were really three covenants. And we came back three months later and... We did the feedback, and it was very authentic. I mean they they gave Mick some feedback the the senior person and, and he needed to hear some things, and he gave the team feedback and then in the story we we shared this moment where it was just wonderful you know a couple of the um, uh, directors raised their hand, one in particular with you know tears kind of coming down her eyes and said, "You know look, if this covenant stuff's going to be serious, if this is our vision of where we want to be, if this is the new you know ideal model, um, we've got to go from you know us and them." to us, you know, we, we've got to be one team. And uh, her exact words escape me now. But the gist of it was, uh, you know, I'm done with the silos, I am done with with the division, I am done with being shut out of your meetings, I am done with, you know, two years of, of being disregarded and disrespected. And you know, you nurse people thinking that you're holier than whatever. Um, and she just put it out there. And you know, the nurse manager started to, to flood tears too and there was it was kind of a therapy moment um and we talk in the book how you don't necessarily need to have that but it was very important it was a breakthrough um and there were apologies and there was kind of you know we wanted them to process what had just happened and so we gave everyone a two-minute opportunity for a statement to talk about how they were feeling and where they wanted to go as a team going forward so it was a chance to verbally publicly declare okay We are up or I am up for the workplace covenant. This is how we are now going to move forward. We are going to be one team. We are going to make decisions as a whole group, not as three people in a corner or in a back room. Uh, Everyone is invited to everyone's meeting. Anything that affects the entire nursing home needs to be decided by the entire senior staff. Um, And uh, that was just amazing. So that was in the first review. And then we came back in the second review and everyone's shoulders are down. And the nurse directors are sitting next to the other directors, the social work and the beverage and the, the admissions and the and there's laughing. And, I, you know, I just had to pinch myself like this is a different group of people. You know, that heavy thing had just gone, that breakthrough moment. And um, indeed, Mick had come up to me afterwards and said, you know, this was amazing. You know, this, this was transform- transformational because he didn't know what to do. He was a good guy with a good heart, but he didn't know how to bridge those those two silos together. Yeah. Right. And get through the baggage that pre existed his tenure as, as senior person.
1: I can think of so many leaders that I coach who need that, where their team is split into two or three on a couple occasions, and a lot of animosity between them and, you know, challenge. So a workplace covenant process sounds like a pretty powerful thing. All right. So let's go to the promise grudges. In fact, I think you just precluded this. Tell me how grudges work. Where do they creep in? And what do we do about them?
2: So let's talk about where they are when there's no covenant. So what happens okay. is, you know, Bill and John work together. And you know, three years ago, Bill said something nasty about John in the meeting. You know, Bill's work is shit terrible and whatever. Sorry, didn't mean to do that on the <laughs> public record. And there's pejoratives and disparages and, and, you know, whatever. It didn't have his back, negative gossip. So There's a grudge that goes back a long time. And even though they may work together and there's, you know, there's some level of of, uh, accommodation for that, that hurt is never forgotten. It's just sitting there on the shoulder for a long, long time. And we see this everywhere. I Mm -hmm. mean, if people have been on the same team long enough, they're carrying around that baggage. So it raises Mm -hmm. a great question. How do you get rid of it? How do you wipe the slate clean? How do you hit reset? And this is, I think, one of the many promises of the workplace covenant, because Explicitly as well as implicitly, the, the, pr- the process is, okay, let's now have this conversation. How do I support and help you be successful? And vice versa, How do you help me feel supported and be successful? And maybe a peer covenant is useful, particularly in, in places where there's mistrust or issues or silos. So how do we help each other feel supported and be successful? And then the understanding is, once we sign that, we are, we're starting at zero. The clock, the clock goes, you know, right back to the beginning. And we agree that everything that happened before we signed this document does not count. And you need to let it go. (laughs) And it is nothing that makes any sense. And yes, we're going to have a review session in three months. And we will evaluate the behaviors exchanged, both the good ones and compliment them as well as the ones that were a bit off track and note them in a gentle uh, but straightforward way. And we'll give each other the feedback and there'll be an opportunity for those micro-adjustments. Um, And at that point, we'll hit reset and say, guess what? The behaviors of the last three months, they're now off the table. We now hit the clock again. So every three months, you're resetting the clock. And because you're addressing the behaviors, go back to the the John and Bill example, they never got rid of their grudge because they never had a chance to address it. No one facilitated the conversation. No one facilitated the apology. No one facilitated the, you know, gee, boy, I really was a jerk. If that had been done to me, I would have felt, you know, terrible too. Well, here... The covenant and the review and the self-review that always goes first because in the review it's always important that the manager reviews him herself and the team reviews itself and then shares that before they hear the feedback from the other side and by the way a little psychological process going on there so if the manager looks at let's use the gender him for a second if the manager looks at his covenant 10 items and as part of the review knows that he's got to share that and he knows that the team's going to be reviewing him in about three minutes after he's done, is he really going to say, well, I was great here, great here, great here, great here, great here, great here. You know, on all 10 things I, I, <laughs> I overachieved, knowing damn well that in three minutes the team, if it's honest, is going to say, boss, really, you made some mistakes. Yeah. Uh, you did good too, but here are some legitimate mistakes. So it encourages the manager to be honest. Right. Uh, and vice versa. So.
1: I think I this, I mean, you are totally selling me on the power of doing this covenant. And it seems like it's the explicitness of it that is really convincing me and the facilitated process, because I don't think a team can do this without an external faci- or a neutral facilitator, I want to say, mm-hmm. and the guaranteed review in three months. It's that, because without, I think if you don't have a guaranteed review and a process for that review that's held clean by somebody who has no stake in the team, it tends to go off the rails really quick quickly, and that's where you go into the blame here and the blame there and the accusations and the, you know, et cetera.
2: Or it's just abandoned. You know, I liken the analogy of an exercise bike that you bring home. It's great if you use it. <laughs> I mean, it'll keep you fit if you use it three times a week. But if you just put your jacket on it and, you know, your dress over it. So it has to be used. Right. right. You're absolutely right. Right.
1: right. Yeah. It's the review process that I think is, is really powerful. And I think teams just assume, oh, well, we can do this without any of that. And I think they're wrong. Okay. I have to ask one question. you got one minute to answer it. My favorite closing question, Seth, what takes you out of your comfort zone and how do you su- survive? What takes
2: me out of my comfort zone? Uh, wow. That is really uh that questions like that take me out of my conference so, i I think at work um when consulting um it is perhaps some of the newer notions of you know the what it called diversity inclusion equity I, I'm just getting up to speed to really embrace and understand those more. Uh, I'm a bit more literal. You know, I grew up with Star Trek. And to me, the, the Vulcan approach to the workplace kind of works for me, <laughs> even though I'm more of a Captain Kirk fan. Um, so yeah, there, there, there's certain things okay. in, the, in the modern place that that uh, on the other hand, um,
1: that's good. You're good. That's good. 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 We'll leave it at that because I'm going to be out of time in any moment here. I don't know. I think it's it's helpful to admit that all of us have our comfort zone moment. So I appreciate that, Seth. Thank you very much. So my guest today is Seth Silver, the book that we're talking about, Meaningful Partnership at Work, How the Workplace Covenant Ensures Mutual Accountability and Success Between Leaders and Teams or Between Peers and Peers, I should add, silverconsultinginc.com. If you like this podcast, please like us on your favorite podcast server. If you want to know more about how to apply this concept and others, check out our new subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. And I think I am totally sold, Seth, on the power of doing this covenant and reviewing it, but only when it's facilitated. And so we make a serious commitment to it and dedicate time to it. So, Seth, thank you for being with the show. My pleasure. It's been fun. Join us next week for more on how to get out of your comfort zone.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.